Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Most people come to Washington seeking power. Power to change policy, power to elect new leaders, power to sway the most influential judges, power to tell stories that shape people's minds. But the oldest story in Washington is how the quest for power almost always comes at the expense of what everyone says they really want, happiness. Of course, it's not just a Washington story. It's part of a much bigger story afflicting the country. Life expectancy in America is down from where it was before the pandemic, driven by so-called deaths of despair, fatal drug overdoses, alcohol-related diseases, and suicides. Depression, anxiety, and chronic illness are all on the rise. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, has described a national loneliness epidemic that has a similar effect on the human body to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. If there's a silver lining to these grim trends, perhaps it's that more people are trying to figure out what truly makes us happy. A few years ago, Arthur Brooks traded away his job running one of the top think tanks in Washington for a career as a full-time happiness scientist. On today's show, he's going to share a secret at the heart of his research that I hope you'll find a worthy idea to reflect on over the holidays. In a city of strivers, workaholics, and perfectionists, a lot of people, maybe even you, come to Washington believing that success will lead to happiness. And then they're confused and even crushed when they attain the former, but the latter does not follow. Brooks's many years of research show we've got it backwards. It's actually happiness that leads to success, not the other way around. So the question, of course, is how do we obtain happiness? Well, Arthur Brooks is going to tell us. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Arthur Brooks has had a few careers. He played the French horn for the Barcelona City Orchestra. He ran the American Enterprise Institute for more than a decade. And today, he teaches about happiness at Harvard and writes a column about it for The Atlantic. He's had some impressive collaborations along the way. He has co-authored articles with the Dalai Lama about how to use mindfulness rather than Machiavelli to overcome your enemies. He wrote his new book, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier with Oprah Winfrey. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So Arthur, let's start with something you've written about before when you turned 40 years old and wrote a bucket list. 
And I want to start with this story because I think um, it has it will have some relevance to the high achieving striver audience that I, I think you know makes up a, a good deal of our listenership. Um, and your area of expertise is um, applicable to every walk of life, but uh, I want to try and focus our conversation today to the extent that we can about this unusual um, uh, animal of uh, of the high achieving striver of Washington D.C., of which you know you know uh, quite a bit. And so let, let's start with this revelation you had when you were forty. Well, I like most drivers, was instructed by the people I admired to put together an aspirational bucket list. And a bucket list, obviously, it's a metaphor. You, on your birthday, you take out of your bucket all of your desires and ambitions and worldly cravings, and you write them down, and you imagine yourself enjoying success in each one of those areas. And that's supposed to inflame your ambition. That's supposed to fire you up. It's supposed to, you know, set yourself in the mindset that you're more likely to achieve all these things. And, and so I did that. I, I, I wrote those things in my bucket list when I was 40. And, and, you know, I, I have kept very careful records of my aspirations and a lot of things about my, you know, well-being for a long time. I can go back to the 90s and I can give you, you know, nine, literally 19 different dimensions of my well-being and how I weight them and how I score them and yeah, I know. I mean, it's what strivers do. <laughs> and are you so one of these guys, are you one of these data trackers? Yeah. Do, do you yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But I wrote my bucket list when I was 40 and I found it well, it was easy to find because I've kept all of my records for a long time. And I found it when I was 50 and I'd hit everything on that list and I was less happy. And I thought to myself at 50, well, that's not what I expected. That's certainly not what I was thinking when I wrote my bucket list at 40, that all these worldly accomplishments, all these striverly achievements, I was going to get them. Now, I know as a social scientist that you're probably, you're, your heart's desire is going to come to you. The problem is that you usually find that your heart's desire was the wrong desire. And that came home to me with huge force, especially given the fact that I'm a social scientist 10 years later, and it set me on a new track toward new goals. You, you developed a, a sort of technique, and this may skip ahead some of the, the key concepts here, but eventually you um, thought of a bucket list, uh, thought of the um, approach to a bucket list in a, in a much different way. So- what was the what was the shift in thinking? There was nothing wrong with what was on my forty year old bucket list. I'm proud of having been the president of the American Enterprise Institute, right, and having written some books. I mean, I'm not proud of it, but I'm pleased with it at least. I mean, pride's kind of a deadly sin, and I'm a Catholic. I don't want to you know rain thunder, <laughs> thunder down on myself. But but you get my point. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those things. The problem was that I was attached to those accomplishments, and I didn't recognize that until I was 50 that I was hanging my well-being on the accomplishment of worldly tasks. And that's inherently empty. So in the meantime, I started doing research on exactly the problem with that. When I was 50 and I found this suboptimal result, no, this negative result from what I was expecting, I, I did all the things that were supposed to make me happy, get successful, be happy. And I found that I'd gotten that, at least my own metrics of success and hadn't gotten happier. On the contrary, I recognized that I needed a different approach and started to do the work and found that actually I needed to stand up to Mother Nature's imperatives on my own happiness. Mother Nature says if you, you know, money, power, pleasure, and fame are going to make you happy, at least in some measure. Money, power, pleasure, and fame. 
Yeah, those, those are, are the, those the four are the, biggies. Yeah. yeah, those are the idols. Those are the idols. I mean, Thomas yeah. Aquinas talked about that in 1265, summarizing Aristotle, basically. But it's true. As a social scientist, I will I will vouch for the fact that those are the categories of worldly idols. Those are the things that people want. Those are the measures of kind of a, a good life in earthly terms. And, and the problem with that, there's nothing wrong with those things per se. The problem is when you assume that you'll be happy when you get those things, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And so the result is I recognize that the problem was not attaining the things on my 40-year-old bucket list. It was being attached to those things on my 40-year-old bucket list. In other words, I went from, from seeking to have more to, to rather seeing my satisfaction more as, as what I have divided by what I want. I needed to detach myself from those accomplishments. I needed intention toward goals without attachment to the result. And so I made a I made a reverse bucket list where I was going to make a list of all of the ambitions and desires. And then I was going to cross out those things, not because I wasn't going to get them, but because easy come, easy go, man. I am not going to tie my happiness to the accomplishment of an earthly reward. And that has changed my life. When you um, really started to seriously study uh, happiness and, and sort of make it your vocation, um, you did it in a big splashy way. You wrote an essay. You announced that you were resigning after 11 years of running AEI. Uh, you had one of the most powerful jobs in, in Washington. If you could just take listeners back to that moment when um, you made that dramatic shift from the heights of the political world in D.C. to academia to study this you know, slightly obscure subject. What was the reaction? Well, when I first resigned as president of AEI, I mean, you, look, you're you're an AEI, you're a uh, Washington insider. You know perfectly that you don't walk away from these jobs, and uh, and so people cling of, to them. Yeah, for sure. You <laughs> have attachment, absolutely. And and one of the things I got two kinds of emails that basically one said, "Do you have cancer?" and the other said, "Do you have a bad <laughs> scandal that we don't see?" Because there's you, you can't be walking away from this voluntarily. And I said, "No, no, 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 I, <laughs> no, no." It's neither one of those things, and people actually didn't believe me. I was very pleased with the job. I mean, it was, I love the American Enterprise Institute and I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy with what we were able to do during the period, but I saw the writing on the wall, you know, as somebody who had studied leadership careers, I had seen that, that you get, you get one run, man. I mean, if you're going to run an organization, generally speaking, it takes about five years as a chief executive in a highly volatile and chaotic environment, which most interesting environments are to instantiate a vision. Then you get five years to really reap the results of that vision, but you only get one vision. And so I went to my board and I said, I'm going to resign. And they said, why don't you stay another 10 years? And I said, you love me now, but I have the data. You're not going to love me in five and 10 years because it's going to feel tired. It's not going to feel good. You need somebody new. And furthermore, I knew that I was going to get less and less and less effective. And that's a pretty frustrating way to live. So I stepped away. I mean, look, this is I'm a, I'm a social scientist. Either I believe my data or I don't. I'm the first one. I'm I'm a I got to eat my own cooking. And so I stepped away from it partly in self-defense, but partly because I wanted to protect the organization that I truly love and make sure they had the best leadership available, which was simply not going to be me after a few more years. I felt I think I think that was right too. And I decided to kind of repot myself. Now I have a background in this. I this is actually not my Second career is my fourth career. I started off as a classical musician for a long time, for 12 years, from 19 to 31. Then I finished college and went to graduate school, became a professor for a decade. And then I ran AEI for about 11 years. 
And then I was ready to change again. It's hard. It's really hard. But I stepped back and said, okay, what am I going to do? And so I did what I always did. I spent six months, you know, in prayer and discernment as a spiritual exercise to figure out what I was supposed to do. And I rewrote a mission statement for my life. You want to hear it? Absolutely. I dedicate the rest of my life until the day I die to lifting people up and bring them together in bonds of love and happiness using science and ideas. And then I went to try to make it happen. Do you think everyone should do a a similar exercise, write a mission statement for their life? Yes. Yes. And I think that people should do it and they should redo it and and they should look at it every... I, I look at my mission statement and all the metrics toward my mission statement every birthday and half birthday. So May 21st and November 21st. That I say this, you know, it, my birthday is always in political playbook. So it's okay. I can actually announce that on the show. <laughs> and and I, I make sure that I'm living up to it. And, you know, my it's a mission statement or, or for that matter, any enterprise where the most important enterprise is your life, obviously. But an enterprise requires that you have kind of an order of operations based on your values. Your mission statement is kind of a summary version, but it's got to have the things that you're trying to do and, and it's got to be in order. For me, I dedicated you know, my work to glorifying God, serving others, having an adventure, and last but not least, making a living because you know I have a family and kids and now I have grandkids. And, and it's important, but, but it had to be in that order. And that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And that, that was the, that was the bet. Can I make a go of it? <laughs> I'm going to jump around a little bit, Arthur. Uh, but you, just because you mentioned your career and the fact that you've had this series of mini careers, um, you've talked about, um, the different career models that one can have. And I know a lot of people who listen to the show are, 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 are younger DC career-oriented people who are sort of thinking ahead, thinking how do they become the next Arthur Brooks. What are the different career models uh, that you see uh, as someone sort of embarks out on a professional life? Yeah, I sh- actually, I think they w- they want to be the next Ryan Lizza, but that's you know just a- great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so m- most of the world, especially the kind of the striverly world, which most of the listeners of this podcast probably fall into. The world tells you that you have a linear career, that you have a linear career path. And that means work hard, play by the rules, achieve, and don't make any big changes in your career unless and until it's the next step up in the line. You know, if you're a lawyer, don't make a change unless it's something that's better than what you're doing before. That's better for your ambition. That's more in line with this vision of what striverly accomplishment is in your line of work. And that linear Career model actually is applicable to a lot of people, but not everybody. It turns out there's three others. That's a pretty classic model in DC, I suppose. Oh though. yeah, and, and you know I teach now at the Harvard yeah. Business School, so yeah, I see it all the time. Now, interestingly, that's the the, the model that we we tend to impose on our students, but it's not the the actual career model for all of our students. Another career model that's actually been quite quite common uh, in the past. So probably your grandfather, probably my father, certainly my father, was called the expert career model. And that's the one in which you don't make very many changes at all. You're looking for a career that gives you the ability to excel, um, to be good at what you do, but it doesn't take over your life so that you can have a life. So it has a lot of security. There's a lot of appreciation and it's just kind of a slow moving thing. My father was the professor at the same university for 40 years. That's what he did with his whole career. And the idea of changing universities, no way. I mean, he he retired and then he went to teach at another university part-time and, you know, he died young. And But but it was this, that's called the expert 
career model. That's working in the post office. That's doing the one thing, the one and done kind of career. That's old school. It doesn't happen as much as it used to. The third career model is called the transitory career model, which is entirely a career that's entirely based on, on, on serving your lifestyle. So in other words, you don't, you don't live to work. You work to live, right? That's what it comes down to. Not very many people listening to this podcast are going to fall into this, but this is what everybody's parents are worried you're going to do, which is that, you know, you don't have very much ambition, but you, you're now you're, you're a barista in Portland, Maine, and then you're going to, you know, you're going to do a little stint as a long haul trucker out of Baton Rouge. And then you fall in love with somebody in, 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 in San Diego. And so you, you know, you take a hike and you basically do this work. It pays the bills, but you're just trying to live. Those are three different career models, but here's the one that characterizes a lot more people than they think. And it really characterizes me, which is called the spiral career model. The spiral career model is that in which you have a series of mini careers of your own design because there's a pattern inside your head of what you're trying to achieve as a human being. Now, that might not seem like it has rhyme or reason, and it might seem weird to outsiders, but it really makes sense to you if you're properly going through the ancient, you know, philosophical experience of discernment. So, you know, what the what the Greeks would, the ancient Greeks called sunesis or what the Buddhists called panna. In, 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 in Pali. It's a, it's a, or, you know, the discernment of spirits. If you're a Catholic like me, the whole point is that you're trying to figure out what the, the point of your life, the why of your life is it follows different contours on the basis of that. And sometimes you make more money and sometimes less. Sometimes you're in the for profit sector, sometimes in the government or nonprofit sector. Maybe you take seven years off to raise your kids and come back into working part time. But the whole point is that the, that the, the coherence of it is, is what you're trying to do to shape your mission to what you're trying to do as a human, not what the job market is trying to do to you is the whole point. And that's that's what's characterized my career. I've taken my professional life down to the studs four times. And um, who knows? Maybe I'll do it again. I'm not sure. Well, your your uh, your bet seemed to have uh, paid off in leaving AEI and doing what you're doing now. Um, you've had some pretty interesting collaborations. Um I, I noticed that you once co-wrote a piece in the Washington Post with the Dalai Lama. And now, of course, this year you uh, published a book with Oprah Winfrey. Uh, uh, we should tell everyone what that book is called, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. Um, so I just I have to ask, like, who sells more copy, uh, the Dalai Lama or Oprah? It sort of depends. And, on where do, and where do you go from there in terms of uh, spiritual advisors? Yeah, yeah. Pope Francis is not answering my texts. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's interesting because there have been two different, very different experiences. I've been actually working quite closely with the Dalai Lama for the last 11 years. I brought him mm. to AEI a bunch of times, and we wrote in the in the Times and the Post together. We're working on a piece together right now, a longer piece together right now for the Atlantic. So that's been an incredibly fruitful collaboration for me as a person, I have to say. I mean, it um, every time I see the Dalai Lama, he says, I want you to be a better Catholic man. Huh. Wow. Yeah. No, he's, he's, I love him. He's done so much for my life and my understanding of life. There's so much of your work that is influenced, well, one, by Thomas Aquinas and uh, your, your, your Catholic uh, faith, but Aquinas comes up quite a bit. But also, um, I'm struck by, struck by how much of your work is influenced by Buddhism, um, could you explain uh, to, to listeners what the what the some of the um, great insights uh, from Buddhism that has informed your social science on happiness? Well, to begin with, we were talking a minute ago about the difference between having intentions in your life 
and having attachments in your life. Uh, a, a very important concept that the Dalai Lama has taught me and, and, and that I've worked on is I've studied Tibetan Buddhism over the last 11 years and sat in meditation with his monks. I'm a longtime meditator. Is, is intention without attachment. It's really the secret to a good life. I mean, you need to be going in a particular direction so you're not going in circles. You're not distracted and wasting your time. But at the same time, you need to be unattached to the result such that you're not falling prey to the idea that your worldly goals are that which are going to depend, that are going to determine your happiness, that are going to determine your fulfillment. Um, that's an incredibly important concept that comes from, not just from Buddhism, by the way, but, you know, I, I almost every year I will, I will study with a, a teacher in Southern India. I go to India a lot as well. Um, the Dalai Lama lives in India, so I'm there for that. But in Southern India, I have a, there are a number of teachers that I've studied with that have been incredibly helpful for me. Another is the whole idea of life falling along a timeline where we have different strengths at different times. There's a whole concept of a second adolescence in Vedic philosophy and in, in Hindu philosophy called vanaprastha, which comes from two Sanskrit words, van and prastha, meaning to retire into the forest that is supposed to happen about age 50, where you're stepping back from your householder ambitions and, and, and paying a little bit more attention to your transcendental life, your spirituality, your philosophy, the, the deeper things, such that you can get into kind of an elite training for the last part of your life, where you're pursuing enlightenment very intensely. One of the ideas that I think you were getting at there, you, you phrased it a little bit differently, but I've seen you in other contexts talk about fluid intelligence, that we have very high fluid intelligence when we're younger, when we're older, starting in the 50s, we have what you, you've described as crystallized intelligence. Sort of the thumbnail is brains versus wisdom. Just quickly explain the difference between those two and why they change as we age. Yeah, I mean it's the 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 idea of the Hindu ashramas, you know, the parts of a well-balanced life that I talked about a minute ago, is it maps on perfectly to the different kinds of intelligence that were first discovered and and explicated by Raymond Cattell, the great British social psychologist of the 60s and 70s, who studied intelligence, not just kind of the, you know, the mechanical IQ type of cognitive ability that we often talk about today. He talked about the relative um, kinds of mental acuity that we have at different points in our lives. And what he showed in his research, which has subsequently been validated by a lot of modern neuroscience, which, you know, anymore, social psychology is incomplete without neuroscience because psychology is biology and biology is psychology. And, and, and so anymore, the moderns are, are using you know, brain science in concert with the old stuff. But what Cattell talked about is that, that he noticed that people have a, a wellspring of, of working memory, of innovative capacity, and, and very clear focus in their 20s and 30s. That's what makes people really good at what they do individually. So that, that's what makes all the hotshot lawyers that are watching us right now. You're just, you crack the case. You're such a good litigator. You're so such a good researcher in your 20s and 30s because of your fluid intelligence. That fluid intelligence increases with your knowledge all the way through your 20s and 30s. It tends to peak at about age 39 or 40. This is in the sciences and law and medicine and music. And I mean, it's just all different and in the arts and all different 
you know, parts of the economy and different professions where you use your brain, you get better and better and better, but it peaks and then it starts to decline. In other words, your working memory starts to falter. It's not horrible and it's not structurally a problem. It's not like something's wrong with your brain. It's basically a, a memory filing problem where there's too many files. That's what it comes down to. I mean, but also our innovative capacity isn't as good. You, you inevitably find that, you know, the early stones was better than later stones. You know, you find that, that people are, they're, they're researchers, I don't know. It's like- a, a the, recent, the recent album is not so bad if you haven't heard it. Okay, I mean, I'll take your word for it, but the uh, but you find that researchers. But, but, but I won't disagree with on the larger point. <laughs> physicists always do their best work. Economists do their be- their most innovative work. I was writing papers in my early thirties that were so mathematically sophisticated I can't read them today. What happens? You, you don't is, understand them anymore. I don't understand them anymore. I don't understand them anymore. Now, like I could get the math back, but the point is I couldn't write them anymore. That, that stuff I was using something called genetic yeah. algorithms to model public finance processes. It was. It was novel stuff. It also had, you know, like 12 readers in the world for the obvious reasons. You know, it's technical. It's also incredibly boring. But later in life, when that's decreasing, there's a second kind of intelligence that comes in called crystallized intelligence that doesn't require working memory. It doesn't require this indefatigable focus or innovative capacity. What it requires is wisdom, is teaching ability, use of metaphor, use of language, pattern recognition. What it requires is you being able to use the vast library in your head to teach other people. You go from your innovator curve to your instructor curve. That crystallized intelligence makes it really easy, much easier for you to teach, for you to lead teams, for you to be a mentor, for you to explain things. A lot of people will say, you know, when they're 60, when I was 30, I didn't know I was such a good teacher. That's because you weren't. You weren't. I mean, it's because you didn't have the, and you know, young people will come into, you know, junior people will come in, um, ran out of graduate school at my university and they'll say, what's the secret to getting great teaching evaluations? And the answer is get old because you're a naturally better teacher under the circumstances. You're a better teacher now? Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. And, and now, by the way, instead of writing these esoteric mathematical journal articles, I write a column in the Atlantic that has a half a million readers a week. And they're not scientists. I mean, I'm trying right now. I'm explaining some relatively nuanced uh, neuroscience and social science concepts, and we're talking about it in a way that's not like esoteric and baffling. I hope. And the reason is because I'm 59, not 29, which is better when it comes to being able to explain things. That increases through your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and stays high in your 80s and 90s. The ultimate crystallized intelligence profession is historian. Because you have to explain a lot, you got to know a lot, you got to be clear and rich in your language. Historians are a pure crystallized intelligence profession. The average historian does half of her or his work after the age of 67, and the better wow. half is the second half. So if you're a historian, take care of your health because your best books are coming in your 80s. Explains uh, uh, Robert Caro. <laughs> Absolutely. Explains <laughs> virtually all of, you know, recently I had lunch with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Man, I mean, she's a force. And, and I asked her about this. She says, oh, yeah, yeah, my ideas are much clearer than they used to be. My ideas are much clearer. Mm-hmm. And that's because she's got that much more knowledge. You, you notice that older people are much better Scrabble players for the same reason. When they, when they learn foreign languages, they have much better vocabulary, even though their accent is worse in foreign languages. Mm-hmm. And that's just because they're, they've got this crystallized intelligence which lends itself to certain activities. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. 
Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between happiness and some of the common proclivities of the people you often advise. And again, to raise this cliche again, a lot of, uh, you know, DC strivers. The, the first kind of, I, I thought about when I was reading that piece that you, you co-authored with the Dalai Lama in the Washington Post a while back, that was about the nature of power and vanquishing one's enemies. And, you know, some, some stuff that we talk about in DC and in politics all the time. Um, if you survey the sort of um, the the space that you're in, the wellness space, the self help space, the how to improve your life through science uh, space, to me, broadly generalizing, and tell me if you think this is just way off, I, I see a lot of books that are informed by Buddhism, Stoicism, ancient wisdom, and the social science and the social sciences. And then you see a whole running list of stuff that's more in the Machiavelli and Art of War or 48 Laws of Power, which has been on the bestseller list ever since it came out. In DC is, 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 a, is a, a 48 Laws of Power town. You're preaching a very different gospel in a way. And I, I wonder if you could just sort of explain the difference, if you think I've articulated it there. No, those are definitely different schools. Um, and and it really depends on, on what the objective is. Um, there aren't very many people who follow pure power laws who endure. And there are even fewer of those people who are happy. And mm. so we have to decide what we want in life. We want to be successful. I understand that. We want to be successful and sometimes in adversarial situations. I have adversarial situations in my life too. The question is, what is the best toolkit over the long run in my life? You know, Keynes always said, in the long run, we're all dead. But, you know, we're all going to be in the long run at some point, and Keynes is dead. We need to think about actually what we want over the long haul of our lives. And I'm persuaded that that loving your enemies is a much better approach. It's a much more effective approach over the long haul if you're willing to stick with it. If you want to endure as a leader, you want to endure with many of the with many of the the worldly signs of success. And 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 furthermore, if you want to thrive, if you want to have a good life, a better life, and you want to bring a better life to other people as well, I think that that's a it's a I think it's just a fundamentally sounder approach. Now, there's a lot of stuff, by the way. Robert Greene, who wrote the Forty Eight Laws of Power, I'm a huge fan of his because I am as well. And he summarizes story with research in such an an, an incredibly coherent way. And a lot of that book actually isn't Machiavellian. A lot of that book really comes, right? Defensive. Yeah. It really comes down to living well and living well with, you know, within the constraints that you have and trying to expand those constraints. If there's a way of putting it, it's basically the laws of power, according to Robert Greene, are not just tricking people. It's seeing the constraints around your life as decision variables, as malleable if you're actually clever and and sometimes if you're generous and good enough. 
are the tools, and really we haven't talked about them as much, so we should do a little kind of uh, dive on the tools and the definitions of happiness and, right. and how to be happier. But is that a toolbox that your average political player, whether it's campaigning, legislating, making it in Washington, are those um, happiness tools compatible with the rough and tumble of American politics? It's a good question. There are inherently negative situations where the positive tools are not going to be successful because they actually don't thrive in the ecosystem that's so deeply flawed. I think there have been a lot of times in American politics where good people, kind people, wise people do well. But I think there are also times when they don't do very well. Now, if I back up, you know, one of the most interesting things I've done in my own life was moving away from Washington. Everyone says this when they leave this beautiful town. Well, it's <laughs> Look, I love Washington. At some point, I'm going to live there again. I mean, don't get me wrong. Is that right? Okay. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, one of my, I mean, my middle son just got married, left the Marine Corps and moved to Washington, for example, right? And, and you know, I raised my kids in Washington. I have a million friends in Washington, for sure. It's great. It's great. But it's a weird place, man. I mean, it is, <laughs> it, I mean, it's just, you start to think that the whole world is like Washington and it isn't. You know, I, I live in Boston now and I talk to my neighbors and I don't know if they're Democrats or Republicans. I, I actually don't know. And it wouldn't really even occur to me to ask. It would be a weird thing to ask, kind of. Huh. They're probably Democrats because it's Massachusetts, right? But yeah. they're not Googling me along, except maybe for happiness. I don't know. It's not, it's, it's just yeah. a different, most of America is just not that political. Second, is that most places I go where politics is happening at the state and local level, it's not terrible. It's actually kind of good. It's sort of inspirational in a lot of ways. I mean, look, you can find places like, you know, New York City where it's it's as bad as Washington, San Francisco. It's awful, right? I mean, the pol the political situation is a mess, but but also I can go to places like, I don't know, Indianapolis where Democrats and Republicans are trying to work together to solve problems and they don't actually see each other as enemies. They see each other as people who kind of have a competition of ideas. And I think there's a lot more of that than there is of the terrible. It's just that Washington tends to be kind of dominated by the terrible at this point. You were head of AEI. Have any of your political views changed since you left DC and have just immersed yourself in happiness studies? I'm not sure my political views have changed, but I think my approach probably has so, I mean, my, my political views are pretty standard. I'm a big believer in the free enterprise system, but not without constraints. I believe that the social welfare system is the greatest achievement of the capitalist system because it allows all of us to lift up people that we've never even met from the margins of society, which is an incredible blessing. So that's a relatively nuanced view, I suspect, about free enterprise. I believe in American leadership around the world using using development and diplomacy, but also a very, very strong defense and, you know, military family. My son was a sniper in the Marine Corps. Um, I believe in uh, a lot of the, I believe in the you know, freedom of religion, but also in a strong freedom of speech. I also believe in a, plur a pluralistic environment where we have kind of a free market for, re for, for religion. Uh, I think these are the things that make America wonderful and great. And those things haven't changed very much. But but here's the thing, Ryan, this really, I probably changed over the last few years. And maybe it's because I left Washington and maybe it's because I study happiness and maybe it's just because I'm getting old. Um, I'm not right. I'm actually wrong. I just don't know on what. You know, <laughs> this is the thing. It's, it's statistically impossible that I'm right on everything that I think. 
I'm wrong on a bunch of stuff. And the only way I'm going to figure that out is by surrounding myself with and having loving conversations where I listen to people with whom I disagree. That's something that's really changed a lot. I'm a lot less defensive about my views and I'm a lot less attached to my views. And also, by the way, you know, I was writing the, um, the, the obituary for Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Buddhist monk um, in the Washington Post. And I remember thinking about this really important idea that he had, which is our greatest attachment tends to be to our opinions. You know, he, we, 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 we clutch on them as if they were jewels, you know? It's, it's almost as if you had a right to kill somebody in self-defense if they contradict you. That's certainly true on college campuses. That's certainly true in a lot of, uh, in the 5% political fringes on right and left in America, right? And when he said that, it made me question, as I was writing his obituary, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh has continued to bless people even, even after his death, uh, including me. Um, I asked myself, what is my attachment to my own political views? And so I'm on my reverse bucket list, which I always put together on my birthday now, this last year, I listed half of my political opinions and I crossed them out. Wow. Not because I don't hold them, but because I'm not going to be attached to them. You see the difference, right? In other words, yeah, I still believe. I still absolutely believe in the primacy of the free enterprise system is the fundamentally best system. But but you know what? If you disagree with me, come sit down next to me because I want to hear what you have to say. And you probably are going to make some pretty good points. And that's fascinating. It gets into an area of discussion that we touched on before and I, I wanted to follow up on. And that is this idea of attachment and self-identification. Uh, one of the things that comes through in your work is just to think of one's career and work itself, this balance between doing work that is fulfilling, um, which is one of the, the sort of cornerstones of living a happy life in your writing, but also not being so defined by it that if you lose your job, your sense of self-identity is washed away. Which I think, if I understand the, the Buddhist view of attachment is the warning against attachment is, I think you use the phrase self-objectify. If you identify so closely with something that can be taken from you, then you're setting yourself up for a big, big loss. At the same time, though, some of these identities are really, really important in making us happy, uh, having a loving relationship, having great friends and family and fulfilling work. I wonder if you could talk about that tension. And, and I know sometimes people, when they criticize Buddhism, and if they don't quite understand the, the, uh, this theory of attachment, they think, oh, oh the, Buddh the Buddhists just want you to be out there on your own, on, not attached to anything, because you risk losing it if, if, if you're attached to it. DC is a town where people self-identify with the work to a degree that, you know, you know maybe LA is, is like that, maybe New York, but there aren't places that are, are, are more like that, that than DC. And, and I've seen it with friends of mine, um, people who their career, their work is everything, and then they lose an election or they get fired from a, a Hill job or they're no longer working at the White House and their life falls apart. Yeah, no, that's right. And that's a very big danger. And it's a desiccated, impoverished life. And there's a reason for that. Now, if you go back to the early 1970s, there was a social psychologist. No, it was a clinical psychologist named Wayne Oates, who, who, who invented a term called workaholism. It didn't, it literally didn't exist before he started writing about it in 1971. He was a complete careerist. Oh, oh, he was, a, he was a, <laughs> he was a workaholic. Oh my gosh. I mean, so bad that his 11 year old son had to call his, his executive assistant to make an appointment with him so he could talk about his report card. 
And, you know, that's how, you know, he's working all the time, all the time. And he said, something's got to change. I, some of our listeners are relating to this, I'm totally. quite sure. But of course, it's ironic that he made his own problem into an opportunity to get famous for his work, right? I mean, it's like, and, and I've been accused of that myself. So it's like, man, I'm going to step back and talk about love and happiness and get a number one New York Times bestseller. I mean, it's ridiculous. I get it, right? But um, so, yeah. so he talked about workaholism. And it exhibits a lot of the same pathologies as any other substance abuse problem or any of the really dangerous behaviors like use of pornography or problem gambling, but but also alcohol and drugs. And that's defensive behavior, hiding behavior, it, you know, not being able to stop, et cetera. Behind that is a worse addiction, which is a success addiction, an addiction to being a successful person, to getting strokes. Most people who fall into this, they, they generally were you know, little Johnny super special and they have parents who patted him on the head and they, they literally, it touches a part of the brain called the ventral striatum, which is a part of the limbic system. That's your reward center. When somebody tells you that you did good and you get very good at it, you wire your brain to actually activate the ventral striatum in response to compliments and response to the best grade response to the highest uh, place in the, in the, in the hierarchy of success. That success addiction is makes you identify unduly with your profession or with who you are, with your status. And behind that is an objectification because when you do that, you become less dimensional as a person. Now, when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you did too, I mean, your name is Lisa, so you're a Catholic like me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, right? And you're, and probably when you were a little boy, your, you know, your dad taught you how real, as a Catholic kid, how bad it is to objectify women. It's a bad thing to objectify women. If you, if you, you know, reduce, and by the way, it's not just a Catholic thing. It's a, a basic human decency thing is to reduce another person to one characteristic, like their looks or their money or whatever it happens to be. That's a sin, man. That's a sin. But we commit that sin against ourselves. We commit the same magnitude of sin when, when we strip ourselves of everything except our, our professional status. And we are nothing else but that. That's like a, a person who says I'm nothing but my looks or my biceps or my money. It's just a, it's a horrible existence and it's a brutal existence. And it's going to be an ultimately a heartbreaking existence is what we find. And, and the result is that I spend a whole lot of time saying, yeah, do your absolute best to earn your success, which is to say to create value vocationally and to lift other people up and serve other people. Absolutely. With your work, but you're not your job, man even less are you your job title. You have to be able to hold those two competing cognitions of I'm going to use my work to do the very best that I can to be excellent in everything that I do, but not to become my work because I'm actually a person. You know, at the end of the day, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to say I wish I'd spent, I'd, I'd written two more columns. You know, I wish I had written another book. You know, I'm going to, I hope I'm surrounded by my, you know, my millions of grandchildren. I, I want people to say he was a good friend. He was a good father. He was a good grandfather. He, he loved us. He helped us. That's what I want. You know, look, all the worldly stuff is going to go away. So what then is the relationship between success and happiness? Is it actually inverse or is it much more complicated than that? Success is, you know, most people, we, we certainly teach our MBA students inadvertently, and the world teaches us, and Mother Nature teaches us. By the way, Mother Nature doesn't care if we're happy. She only cares about our survival and gene propagation, you know, food and mates. Very cruel trick. Oh, it's a cruel trick because you want to be happy. 
she wants you to to survive and pass on your genes. And so therefore, the urges that help you survive and pass on your genes, you associate them with your happiness. And that gets to the answer to the question that you just asked. What are the things that allow you to pass on your genes and survive? Money, power, pleasure, and fame. And fame means the admiration or esteem of other people. Those are the big four. Those are the big categories of things. When you're looking for mates, you're looking for food, you're looking for prestige and, and, and rising in social hierarchies. You want to have a bigger cave with more animal skins and more flints sitting in it so you can survive the winter and if you're lucky, have 75 kids. You don't actually want that. The problem is that when you act as if you did want that, you're not going to be happy. The success that you're impelled toward will not actually bring you greater happiness. On the contrary, seeking happiness will bring you enough success. That's the truth. It's it's flipped around. It is. Happiness leads to success rather than success leading to happiness. That is correct. So success will not, I should say, maximizing worldly success will not bring you happiness. But seeking the sources of happiness will bring you enough worldly success, albeit less than the first strategy. And that makes people panic. Half of the people watching this podcast or listening to this podcast right now are like, ugh, Oh, but, oh, oh man, what are you doing? What have I been doing? What do you mean by enough success? <laughs> also, what's wrong with power, money, fame? I know. And it's interesting that you, you, know, you mentioned um, you know, Washington, D.C. You know, when Aquinas talked about the four sources, he talked about these as idols, right? He said that everybody wants to be happy, and he equated happiness with finding God. And he said that what we do, because, you know, God is, let's be honest, pretty inconvenient, you know, a lot of one-sided conversations and tons of rules. <laughs> and, and so we look for these worldly substitutes that have kind of these divine characteristics. And he said they are money, power, pleasure, and fame. That's what he, that's the esteem of other people. Those are the four idols. And furthermore, he he suggests that we tend to congregate around our pursuit of these idols. So quick quiz. What is the idol in Washington? What is the what is the main idol? What's the golden calf in Washington of money, power, pleasure, and fame? What do people seek? You know, it's not money, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're a power. You mean power, man? Power, baby. You know, what about LA? Yeah. Although, Tell me about LA. Although I think DC money is catching up to power in DC. Now, in the last, because uh, yeah, every lawyer makes since, two since, million. Yeah, I know. Since I've I've been here, that's one change in the twenty something years I've been here. Right in LA, it's fame. In New York, it's money. And and you know this by when you're at a party in these places, that's the only thing people are talking about. It's so boring. It's so boring. I mean, in, in New York, they just talk about how's your year? How's your year? It's like, how much did you hear how much so-and-so paid for his apartment? It's like it's <laughs> in DC, it's how close are you to Senator So-and-so? And in LA, it's the business, right? And it's and that's because people are naturally looking to get toward these idols and they congregate into communities based on the idolatry itself. Let's talk a little bit about friendship and romantic love, which is a, another sort of core part of what you call the, the happiness portfolio. Right. I live in DC, so everyone is my friend. That's the cliche, right? Every politician is, uh, no matter how much they, they hate someone, they're, they're, they're his or her friend. You have this great phrase, real friends and deal friends. And I think a lot of our listeners will get a lot out of understanding the difference between real friends and deal friends. Yeah. So 
this really gets back to, to Aristotle, who if you read one person on friendship, Aristotle is the one to read. So in the Nicomachean Ethics, he talks about the levels of friendship. And at the bottom is kind of these friendships of convenience or transaction. And, and look, the world goes around because we get along. You know, and you you have you you work with people, you have business with people, you transact with people. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not enough for your happiness. That's not enough for your flourishing. He says above that is these friendships of basically admiration, where you admire somebody's characteristics, and that's better. But it's not really at the highest level, which he thinks of as the virtuous friendship or the the friendship, the perfect friendship, which he calls the atelic friendship. Atelic means it doesn't have, does not have a telos. It doesn't have a usefulness to it. And basically what this means is your transactional friendships are useful. Those are deal friends. At the top, what you need for happiness, according to Aristotle, and by the way, all modern social psychologists and common sense in your grandma will tell you that you need people who are useless to you, that you just love. And if everybody's useful to you, you're going to be lonely. You're going to be lonely. There's nobody there to take your 3 a.m. phone call. That's just a fact. It's your useless friends who don't need you. I don't mean worthless friends. I have those two, right? But you get, <laughs> you know what I mean of the, the people who, who don't, you're not useful to them and they're not useful to you. You just, you just love each other. You know, it's like, I have, I have a few friends like this, like just a really kind of a couple of friends like this outside of my marriage. And you know, I'm thinking of one, he lives in Atlanta. I just love him. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me for something in his life or work. And vice versa. But I talk to him and 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 we, you know, we catch up on on life and 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 faith and and the things and he talks to me about Georgia football and he's really into that. And you know, I'm not into it except when he's talking about it. And then I get really into it, right? Because he's my we're useless friends. So what's your advice for your average DC striver who comes to town and sees their decades of career development as a series or as a collection of deal friends and building that kind of network as a way to sort of advance? How does, how does someone like that have more useless friends? Well, if these are your only friends, you're going to be lonely. And that's actually one of the reasons that loneliness has been increasing. We have a great Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, <clears throat> as you know, of course, and he writes about Loneliness. He told me in an interview that that loneliness is our greatest public health threat, more than coronavirus, more than gun wow. or, or or opioid um, uh, mortality. It's loneliness, and that's because you know everything about quality of life and self harm and all these other problems besides corona, obviously. Although corona actually led to more loneliness, it wasn't yeah. a result of loneliness. It's all kind of tied into each other in this way. Um, is is just deadly. But that explains the rise in deaths of despair, of, of suicide and alcoholism and, dr and drug addiction. Yeah. And you can actually find the people who have really adverse circumstances in their life, if they have a lot of oxytocin in their life, which is the neuropeptide of human connection, which only comes from eye contact and touch. And you only have deep eye contact and touch with your useless friends, quite frankly. You don't look deeply into the eyes of your business partner unless you're, unless you're trying to freak them out. You know, the, the, the truth is that you try to look into the soul of somebody whose soul you're interested in. And, and, you know, oxytocin, which is, once again, biology is psychology and psychology is biology. And it's a perfect example of this. And there's just less and less. And if you're coming to Washington, D.C. as a super striver and you're going to, 
you're trying to depend for your human flourishing on your on the the quality of your connections and the you know the depth of your Rolodex, you're going to be a very lonely person. You need to actually do the work to to have real friendships as well. And those are the people who don't really care how connected you are on the hill. You need people who, you know, will take your 3 a.m. phone call, who will talk about something useless and stupid with you that's just fun and interesting. And and you have to cultivate those friendships, and those friendships take time. You don't get that eye contact when you're at the holiday party looking over your, their shoulder to see if someone more important is coming by. Man, I love that about DC. And, it, you know, it's a cliche, <laughs> and it's absolutely true. <laughs> um, let's talk about relationships one of the interesting findings that you've written about over the years is um, you don't want to be too compatible with your life mates. Why Why is that? Uh, that might make things look difficult here in Washington, but tell us why difference is important in relationships and what the science says about that. So I kind of got onto this trail, this beat in research, when I started to notice that that dating apps were leading to all kinds of chaos in people's romantic lives. Specifically, some people meet their their partner spouse on a dating app, but you're finding that more and more people have more and more variety with people that they can date and are more and more likely, more than any time since we've been keeping data on this, to say that they're unsatisfied with their dating lives and having trouble finding somebody who's a good match for them. The reason for that, it appeared in the data, and it turns out to be <clears throat> absolutely validated by both the neuroscience and the social science, is that you're not attracted to people who are too much like you. And dating online, you know, internet or dating apps allow you to curate your profile to find people who are basically your sibling, which is, you know, my adult kids will tell me is not hot. You know, <laughs> you know and, and, and why do we do that? Because we're narcissistic. But when we're out in the wild, we can't curate that that carefully. What we find is we we will be around people who have enough compatibility of you know values or circumstance or the right religion or whatever it happens to be, that's a, a that's a non-negotiable. But then we're most attracted to the people who are different than we are and who are, who excite us, who stimulate us, who who grab our attention, who complete us when we're actually in a relationship. There's a lot of, of, of physiology behind this as well. I mean, these, these um, studies that actually show that when people um, have very different um, immunological profiles that tend to find each other sexier. And the reason is because they're more, they're more likely to want to mate, have kids that have a better immunological profile across two very different parents. And, and as a matter of fact, you can actually find that when, when women smell the shirts of men they never, they've never met, and they they'll just rate. The I don't want to know what poor grad students had to uh, volunteer for that. Yeah, study. These were undergrads. You paid them twenty bucks. Undergrads will do anything <laughs> for twenty bucks. So there you go. They were sniffing T-shirts of men they'd never met, and and uniformly they found that women would uh, would rate the men higher just based on the smell of their T-shirts if they were more different than they were immunologically. In other words, difference makes makes your brain say this is healthy. This is good. This is sexy. I mean, that, you want to embrace diversity. That's literally embracing diversity. So if you are on the Hill and you're at that uh, hearing and you suddenly find yourself um, attracted to someone of the other party, don't stifle that feeling. It, that could be exactly what leads to uh, a great relationship. Yeah. And one point about that, actually, Ryan, that's really especially germane in the, in the, in the research to you know, people in Washington, D.C. listening to this podcast 
one of the reasons that we're finding that more and more people are lonely, even though they have lots of dating potential, is because they're less and less likely to to want to date somebody who is of the different party. This is a really big problem. So you find that 71% of Democrats won't date a Republican. 41% of Republicans won't date a Democrat, which just shows that Republicans have lower dating standards than Democrats. I was going to say, that's very interesting. The Republicans are more open-minded on this metric. Well, what it is, is that more women are Democrats and more men are, are Republicans and men- Oh, there you go. It's a gender gap thing. That, that's, it's actually yeah. male, female, ten, in, you know, anyway, you fill in the blanks on yeah. that one. But you get the point that that's just too high. Yeah. That's just too high. And that's basically what you would expect for religion. And that's more evidence that politics has become a cult. And that's a, it's a dangerous cult because all the sacraments are goofed up and it leads to misery, never to bliss. Arthur, um, I want to finish up with some of the um, your big takeaways and sort of uh, protocols and things people should do to maintain long-term uh, happiness. I put together your sort of seven rules you still have those memorized? Well, yeah. I mean, these are actually the, the 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 characteristics of people who are happy and well when they're old. Yeah, let's finish up by going through those because I think as people go into the holidays and as they're listening to this, it's uh, a good way to finish a, a very practical things people can take away from this conversation. A couple of them are not going to be uh, exactly shocking, but some of them are very interesting. Yeah, so yeah. So, and a lot of people listening to us are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. These are the investments, by the way. These are the things you want to invest in if you want to be happier as you get older and have the best shot at having a good life as you get older, getting happier than you are now, which everybody wants, obviously. The first four are really obvious. Um, smoking, drinking, diet, and exercise. You find that it's not just about health. It's also about happiness. And the biggest one of that is about drinking. And I know, I mean, Washington is such a hard drinking town. And so I'm, gonna, I'm about to be the bearer of bad news. Don't turn off. No, Ryan. let's dwell on this for a second. Yeah, because don't I don't turn I think off this Ryan is, Liz's this, podcast. Yeah. But I got, I, I got, it's like, this is not Ryan. This is Arthur. This is my fault. Okay. Right? The, uh, the, the literature shows, and this comes from the Harvard Study of Adult Development, an 85-year longitudinal study. Starting with men that, who studied at Harvard in the thir late 30s, but then matched up with people who didn't go to college. So it was more demographically um, uh, representative and then their spouses and then their kids. And so it became more, it became less white and less male and less college educated and less anyway. So it's pretty demographically representative and it's a great sample. It's a, it's a crystal ball. And one of the things that they found is the one of the greatest sources of anguish, of unhappiness, of, of divorce of loneliness was misuse of alcohol. That was just, and it, it wasn't that, you know, people are frustrated then they drink, it's that they drink and then they become frustrated. And, and so he, the bottom line that the researchers said, a guy named George Valiant who ran the study for 30 years and now Bob Waldinger, who's the greatest and who's my colleague at Harvard, I've been running it for over 30 years. And it's basically, look, if you're wondering about your drinking, just stop. If you have alcoholism in your family, just stop. What's the right amount of drinking? Well, I don't mean, you know, if you look at the newest research, it's two per week <laughs> above which, you know, and again, you got to decide. Everybody's got to decide about their own life and make their own decisions. I do lots of things that are, are, are not prudent, right? Like I drive an Italian car, not prudent, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, it's kind of cool and it's sort of fun and it sort of makes me happy, right? <laughs> so you decide if more than two drinks a week, but the whole point is the science is getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And the longitudinal studies say happy and healthy, drink less and don't get into trouble. Smoking. Just to pause on that for a second, Arthur, the health authorities' recommendations on drinking are so far behind where the research is, it seems totally. to me. Totally. Where 
everyone is saying one to two max, basically, there's really no amount of drinking that's healthy. But if you go into a doctor's office and you discuss your drinking, they're likely to tell you one to two drinks a night is fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big old bathtubs full of red <laughs> wine. Enjoy. Oh, it's got, yeah, no, it's got antioxidants in it, man. It's like a, a handful <laughs> of blueberries will get that for you. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, yeah. actually, the way that that works. And and part of the reason- But I do think I think things are changing fast on this yeah, subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, know, it's my, not as fast my... as you'd like because your doctor is mixing up a pitcher of martinis and he, you know, he's kind of defensive about it. So, you know, <laughs> the truth is that the higher your socioeconomic status, the more you drink and the more your problem drink. That's something that's been very clear. You think of somebody who drinks too much as somebody who's down and out, the margins of society. That's not right. That's not right. You find problem drinking increases with income and socioeconomic status in America and most places around the world. Not to private, what has this insight, how has it changed your own relationship with alcohol to the extent that you had one or not? Well, I quit a long time ago. So when I first- Oh, you do? So you don't drink? I don't drink at all. I haven't drunk at all since my 30s. Okay. I have trouble with it in my family. And I was looking, I'm a social scientist. I was looking at the data and, and, and I saw the path. I saw the future. You know, that's what I can, you know, this is me search, Ryan. It's not research. <laughs> and uh, I'm a selfish person. And I looked at it and I said, like, a lot of trouble with this in my family. And, and, and I'd like to drink. So no. And I stopped. And it was a good choice, actually, because, you know, when I was after that, I became president of AEI. And trust me, if I were president of AEI and a drinker, I would have been a complete <laughs> lush. <laughs> so, and uh, so the second is smoking. And obviously don't, I mean, come on. Right. And then uh, at this point, you know, how much data do you need? Um, diet and exercise, that means that means balance, 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 balance. Don't become a maniac. A lot of people who get rid of substances and have trouble with addiction, they go overboard on the diet and exercise and, 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 and wind up with all kinds of weird conditions having to do with the fact that they're so obsessive about what they're doing in diet and exercise. The whole point is yo-yo diets are not good. And um, you know, exercise has to be really balanced. The best kind of exercise for your health, by the way, is walking. It's the truly human exercise. I mean, I go to the gym 60 minutes a day to manage my negative affect, but not three times a day. And so the whole point <laughs> is that, that those are pretty obvious. The last three beyond smoking, drinking, diet, and exercise are a little less, are a little less uh, uh, intuitive. Number one, is is you need a coping mechanism for your anxiety. A coping mechanism for your anxiety. Got okay. Anxiety is nothing more than unfocused fear. That's all it is. Anxiety is unfocused fear. It has a physical manifestation, which is stress. It has a mental manifestation, which is worry. Those are the two sides of anxiety, which is unfocused fear. You need a coping mechanism. So when this crops up during the day, when you're ruminating on something that's making you anxious, you need a tool to right. deal with that. The best single way without, you know, expensive therapy is get out a piece of paper and write down what's freaking you out because you can't let it ruminate. You can't let the, the anxiety roam around in the limbic system of your brain. You need to move the experience to focus it, which is the way that fear was evolved. It's supposed to be episodic, not constant. Everybody in Washington, D.C. is leading very anxious lifestyles. You need to list your anxieties more. It's the fastest way for you to get relief. But more, more, more to the point on this, it's not about listing. It's about having a coping mechanism that you work on, you're good at, that's good for you, and you do every day. 
Just quickly on that, what if you were plugged in uh, to a um, a text-based service that constantly fed you pieces of information that made you extremely agitated and allowed you to fight back and forth with people all day long, and it also buzzed you uh, either on your wrist or in your pocket every time someone talked about you? Would this be healthy or unhealthy if you were trying to have an, uh, uh, adopt an adaptive coping style? Fortunately, this is all science fiction, Ryan. So it doesn't exist <laughs> at this point. But but yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, here's the point. You know, the, the way that fear is supposed to work is that your amygdala, which is part of your limbic system, lights up. It sends a signal through the hypothalamus of your brain to your pituitary glands. That then it stimulates your adrenal glands sitting over your kidneys to spit out stress hormones in 74 milliseconds so that you can run away and climb a tree. If you're doing something like checking your Twitter feed, you know, 10 times an hour, you know, wondering what people are saying about you or trying to keep up with the news and it's stimulating a slight drip of cortisol, epinephrine and norepinephrine, you know, a little spritz into the, you know, the locus ceruleus of your brain and freaking you out. It's going to ruin your quality of life. Yeah. Do no harm. You know, list listing is great. Good point, Ryan. Take the app off your phone. <laughs> By the way, this is what I do. I'm, I'm real serious about social media. Social media is incredibly dangerous. Incredibly yeah. dangerous. It's one of the things that we use and we, we, we abuse it to our own detriment constantly. When I have a book that's coming out, for example, I know that social media is going to be a really big uh, threat for me. So I take the apps off my phone. And, and usually, even during when I don't have a book coming out, I, I limit my social media consumption for 20 minutes across all platforms and I only use it on the laptop. I never use it on I never use it on the device because otherwise it just becomes like, you know, you're looking at it in the bathroom. Are you kidding me? That's just that's just nasty. That's just the dumbest thing <laughs> I've ever heard. So yeah, let's like have some self-respect, people. Anyway. So that's uh the second point is learn, 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 constant learning. The happiest, healthiest people in older age are lifelong learners. And the best way to do that is to be reading wisdom literature, reading something that's more transcendent to your daily experience than you ordinarily would. I know that everybody is a huge reader who's watching this. And so am I. I read 20 academic journal articles a week in social science and neuroscience because I have to do my job. That's not it. Yeah. Right. And reading uh, every article that's about politics every day in a job like mine is not it either. Yeah. You need to do something for at least 15 minutes a day that will enrich you and help you to learn. Maybe that's the Brothers Karamazov, which by the way, everybody go home and reread it. Maybe it's the Nicomachean Ethics. Maybe it's the Holy Bible. Maybe it's the, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, esoteric text actually occurs to you. Um, go read. And last but not least, the most important, the, the, the granddaddy of all of the seven practices is love. The happiest people have a stable marriage, uh, a.k.a. romantic partnership and close friends, both if possible, one if not. And the happiest people who are married have more than one friend who's not their spouse. That's what a real friend who's not their spouse. That's what it comes down to. And those patterns are inviolable. Now, there are some people who are super happy, especially women who are not married, but have very close personal friendships. That's super important. Happiness is love. If you can remember one thing, that's it. Love of the divine, love of your friends, love of your family, love expressed to everybody as an offering through the way you make your daily bread and some key relationships for people just 
They just love you no matter who you are. And uh, if you remember one thing from the last hour that we've talked, I mean, everybody's listening to us. I hope it's that. Um, happiness is love. Well, that is a, a terrific way uh, to end an extremely enlightening conversation. We could go on for another hour, Arthur. I really, really enjoyed it. Great way to end the year. Great way to do something during the holidays. That's not about a government shutdown or the latest negotiations about a bill that's not going to happen. So I really, really appreciate it. And uh, let's do this again next year. Looking forward to your piece in The Atlantic, collaborating with the Dalai Lama. And thank you so much for an incredible conversation. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate all the work that you're doing. And uh, happy holidays to everybody watching and happy new year. And that's our show. We'll be off next week for the holidays, but we will be back in the new year. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>